You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Pew Bible, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Habakkuk has complained at God. God has answered back. And, and now this, these, these are those who have been oppressed. Uh, these are the nations that the Chaldeans have oppressed. So when it says, shall not all these, the these is, are the nations going to cry out against the Chaldeans. So this is Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through the end of the chapter. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him. Who heaps up what is not his own? For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who, who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame. Instead of glory, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So this morning we're going to spend our time in probably the toughest section in the book of Habakkuk. Um, I love expository preaching. I like to just work through books of the Bible. It assigns me a text, and so we just go with what's next And so that means that we go through the woe passage of the book of Habakkuk, 
But part of expository preaching then is that also the point of the text is the point of the sermon. And also the ethos of the text is the ethos of the sermon. Which means what you heard five times this morning was woe. <laughs> woe. Woe to the Chaldeans. This is a tough topic this morning because we are seeing the justice of God in its full flower. That God for sure is going to do what is right. God is just. And those who persist in their transgression against him will not escape his justice. Those who persist in their sins. Here's the big idea. Those who persist in their sins will not escape judgment. They may prosper for a season, but their final state will not be one of joy. This is being spoken because remember Habakkuk through this through the sermon through this through his letter here, he's complained, God, Jerusalem is full of sin. Do something about it. And God says, you're right, Habakkuk. I should do something about it. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, and they're going to come in, an unrighteous nation, more wicked than Jerusalem. They're going to come in, and they're going to bring judgment on Jerusalem. And Habakkuk says, whoa, wait up, God. I want you, not that. How can you judge an unrighteous nation by a further and more unrighteous nation? But God says, no, for sure, it's going to happen. Write it down. Put it on a tablet that a herald may run with it. This is going to come to pass. But he says now in chapter 2, the reality is God is going to use the Chaldeans and they're going to come in. The Babylonian captivity is going to happen. They're going to prosper for a season. But God's justice is never going to be denied. The Chaldeans are going to feel great about their winning. They're marching through history. They have an important place in history of wiping out all of these nations but they are going to, like a, like a spring flower, they're going to bloom up, be beautiful, and then fall over and die. And God's justice, though he is using the Chaldeans, they, they are not themselves going to escape punishment. Jerusalem's not going to escape punishment, but neither, neither are the Chaldeans. So this idea, those who persist in their sins will not escape judgment, right out of the gate, this is a tough topic for our times. The idea of sin even is just foreign to us unless basically we mean that sin is some sort of denial of self. Like that's the only sin that's acceptable in the world today is sin is if I deny myself or deny my own, uh, my own desires, that's some sort of sin against self. That's the only sin we almost recognize today. The denial of self-autonomy or backwards clinging to old thoughts of morality as though God has spoken, do this, don't do that. This, that. Those are backward ideas. The only real sins today are ones of denial of personal desire almost. Why are the biblical definitions of sin so looked down upon today? Well, I think because we have learned that you can do quite well by shirking God's shackles of his, of his righteous command. You can do quite well. There are scores of happy people who live outside of God's design for life. We can look across popular culture at all sorts of artists 
and actors and, and influential uh, in, individuals and see the success of their life and know they don't love Jesus in the least. They do not care about God's righteous law. And look how great they're doing. Look at all of our famous athletes. Many of them, yes, I know we have athletes that love Jesus and try to be a good faithful witness, but many of them living their life and all of their joy and all of their excess have no desire for God. And look, life is going great for them. Life's going great. You know, we could, I don't want to list off any names, but you know, you could list off of different genres of music and individuals who are doing very well and we love and they are they are big on social media, and you look at their life, it doesn't conform at all to God's pattern for blessing, and yet, look at them, they are blessed. What is going on? Why should we bother taking seriously the commands of the Bible? Because obviously, look at, look at their lives, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Instead, we believe that our delights, that our desires always lead to delight, Following your desires leads to delight. But instead of our desires leading to delight, what Habakkuk is telling us, the Chaldeans, they're following their desires and it's leading to their delight. They're taking over Jerusalem. But their delight in the moment will end in their final doom. God's justice will not be escaped. God's justice will not be escaped. What's scary about the line of thinking with these Chaldeans is that we are very much like them. They're convinced that their temporal success and enjoyment of life was the beginning of their golden age. Look at us. Everything's going great. And right around the corner is the justice of God chasing them down. They will not skip God's justice. Their success is just a blip on the radar screen of existence. God enacts his judgment on the Chaldeans for their rebellion against him. There's five woes here. We're not, it's, it's, it's beneficial to work through them. We're not going to do that this morning. But just to summarize them, the first woe is over their greed. They've plundered, but then they will end up being plundered. Right? You, you plundered others, but then you'll be plundered. The second woe is over their violence. Woe to him who has got evil gain. They, they've harmed others for their own success. With the harm they've dealt out, they themselves will be harmed. They've had murderous desire. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. They've covered over their enemies. Habakkuk, God, God says to Habakkuk, the day is coming where I'll cover everything. You've covered over your enemies. You've buried them in the ground. You've murdered them. The day is coming, God says, you're covering, I'll cover everything. It'll be me. I, I'll be over top of everything as the waters cover the sea. The fourth woe is over their drunken immorality. They've, they've caused others to drink into drunkenness and they've exposed them. They've heightened their shame. They've heightened their shame. They've shamed others, but they themselves will be shamed. And lastly, their idolatry, the fifth woe, is over their making objects of worship, but they have no breath in them to actually help them. They've made these gods. They've said, here is what I worship. Here is my prize. Here is the thing that gives me life. And they've made this thing, but it has no actual breath to actually help them. What God is revealing to Habakkuk is that no one will ultimately escape the justice of God. 
Though God is raising up the Babylonians to punish Judah for their sins, this does not mean that the Babylonians will escape justice for their own sins. There are no fugitives from God's justice. You may escape for a season. You may even escape justice for the rest of this worldly life. But God misses nothing. And all the wrongs will be brought into the courtroom of God's justice. The evildoer will be punished. This is terrifying news. This is terrifying news. Woe to all sinners. You will be found out. And God's justice will be given. You know, one of the frustrating things in our world today is that we have limited power to enact penalties upon people. You know, it's like if you go on on a... I don't want to be graphic. Um, Well, so even take the Bernie Madoff. He he just passed away this week, Bernie Madoff and the Madoff scheme. And he defrauded people of millions and billions of dollars. And he he was at whatever age, 80 or something like that. He was sentenced to 150 years in prison. It's unservable. Like he can't. You can't, you can't serve 150 years if you're already 80. But they're just trying to, trying to bring enough stiff penalty for the ruin that he caused. But we have no real ability in our judicial system. If you, if you kill several people, how do you serve several people life sentences? It doesn't, it, there's no, we don't have very good scales. God has no problem working justice. And so though we may escape Though people may escape justice in this life, they will not finally escape. The evildoer will be punished. We ask, well, gosh, this is, isn't this just, this is the Old Testament, God, Darren. And we're now, we're now into, into Jesus, and, and, and so all that judgment's gone. Well, Matthew chapter, 20, Matthew chapter 18, just quickly, hear this parable um, Parable from Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Peter comes up to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? We all know this story, right? Jesus said to him, no, I say not seven times, but 70 times seven. You should forgive him. Goes on, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. That servant falls on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that servant, the one who had been forgiven, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is very small compared to his 10,000 talents. Very small. He owes him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down. This is a familiar scene. Falls down and pleads with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 
so also, this is Jesus speaking, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Youch. Jesus is bringing the fire there. That's, that's a, all right, so 2 Thessalonians, one more place. Paul speaks about the, the coming justice of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5, starting verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with the mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We struggle with the doctrine of the justice of God, but the Bible does not shy away from this reality that God will do justice. Commentator says this, the concept of the execution of reciprocal justice does not appeal to humanity, but it is God's way. By this, he proves himself to be impartial and righteous as a judge. By this way, he finally establishes himself as just. And we're going to finish that quote, but just hang that on the front of, of, of this, hang on to the front of this quote. God is proving himself impartial and righteous as a judge. We don't have time this morning, but Psalm 73 is a place where you can go and you can see this very thing. The psalm writer is wrestling. How are the wicked so prosperous? How do they do, how long can God delay his justice? Why do they do so well when the righteous suffer so much? And then finally, the psalm writer, verse 17, goes into God's sanctuary and he gets a different perspective on the scope of God's ability to work his justice. And he worships, he ends up in worship. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, my strength may fail, but you are my strength in my life and my portion forever. And the, the psalm writer, that's from Psalm 73, the psalm writer begins to worship because he's, his eyes are lifted off of this world to the reality of who God is. Likewise, Habakkuk in this section is being called to lift his eyes from his anthropocentric view, this man-centered, that's the fancy word for man-centered view. He's lifted his eyes from this man-centered view to a theocentric view. God, he lifts his eyes to God. Instead of being consumed with life from the perspective of man, he is challenged to see things from the perspective of the almighty God over it all. We see this in chapter 2, verse 14, right? One of these judgments is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're not the first empire to rise in history. They were a dominating force, but they're gone. It's not the first empire to rise. It's not the first one to fall, and it won't be the last empire. Many empires have risen, 
Many empires have fallen. And many empires that live today will fall. They will come to their end. But one day, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover everything and it will not fail. God will not fail at his purposes and God's kingdom will not fall as the, knowledge, as the waters cover the sea. Okay, so what's that? It's, it's kind of weird language, but if you go to the sea, how much of the sea is covered by water? All of it, right. Okay, so as the waters cover the seas, that's the way the glory of God is going to cover everything. His kingdom is going to rule over everything. One of our great ailments is nearsightedness. And I don't mean that physically with your eyes. Sorry for those of you who are actually nearsighted. My apologies. I shouldn't say that as a negative thing. What I mean is that we have eyesight only around ourselves and towards ourselves. We view life only from our little perspective, and we are quite convinced that it is the objectively true viewpoint. This is one of the struggles in discussing great doctrines about God. It's very difficult to talk about God's justice. It's very difficult to talk about God's sovereignty. It's difficult to talk about the exclusivity of the gospel. It's difficult to talk about things like God's election, God's purposes, God's wrath. All of these things are tough to talk about when, when the starting point is self. When the starting point is self. When, when we start every doctrine from man and try to work out towards God, we get a big mess. But when you have a view of who God is and his greatness his righteousness, his holiness, and you work those doctrines back to yourself, then they take on all their multifaceted glory that they are to have for us. If your view of God is minuscule, if, if, you, if you're large and God is this interesting little thing you're trying to figure out, then there's no point in talking about his great works. All of the great doctrines about God must be tethered to the reality of his greatness to not have an awe and respect for God and his greatness, that makes any effort to live for him absolutely pointless. There'll be nothing grand enough to ground your life upon. And so verse 20, Habakkuk, seeing God's greatness, the justice of God is coming in, and it, it, it's real, and it's hurtful for the people of Jerusalem. It's not going to be, but God... Remember we said, chapter 2, verse, chapter two, verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. There are those who will trust God through this. There are those who will cling to him. And the justice that needs to be served out will be served out. Habakkuk, upon seeing God's greatness, when you see this, you're then in a position like Habakkuk. It's at the end of this chapter. He falls silent. He's repentant. He is ready to worship. It's kind of like Job at the end of the book of Job. If you've read all 42 chapters of, of that book, Job at the very end, he falls silent, right? He says, my eyes have seen you, but, but now I have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job says in Psalm 42, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. My eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent and dust and ashes 
Job has his eyes lifted off of just himself into what God is doing in the world. In chapter 40, verse 4, Job answers the Lord, says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no farther. Job admits he'd heard of God, but now he sees him, and so he repents. He falls quiet. God is doing his work. And often, from our viewpoint, it is, it is though that is hidden from our understanding. God, if you were in Jerusalem at this time, you're saying, you're saying Habakkuk was, God, you're not doing, your, your work is not being performed. How can all these things be going wrong in my life? Maybe you've been there. I certainly have been there. How can, you're working, no you're not, look at my life, it's a wreck, all these things going wrong, these diagnoses, these difficulties, these internal struggles, these losses, these sorrows, this heartache, this opposition, things aren't going my way, God. Habakkuk has to shut his mouth and worship because God is working purposes far bigger than he can see or that he can imagine. Notice it's not some argument that we ought never express ourselves or raise complaint to God. Job has lots of complaint to God. Habakkuk has lots of complaint to God. God can take it. We pray, we, we, we moan, we yearn, we express our desires to God. But at the end, at the end, they, they, they speak out, God, he listens, he responds, and then when they see God for who he is and for what he is doing, they fall silent. There is an aspect of which this is what it means to live by faith. Some people object. Religious people, you know, they just have blind belief. I'm not talking about blind belief. I'm talking about silent faith, a faith that after expressing, here's all that I'd like to see happen, God, trusts him. Trust him. There's a difference between blind belief and silent faith that is trusting God. Habakkuk, commentator says this, Habakkuk had begun his dialogue in an effort to understand the mysterious ways of a holy God with a sinful people. Now he stands in the presence of the Lord's temple, hushed in reverential awe. He may not have grasped fully all the implications of the divine answer to this query. Yet he stands assured of the abiding lordship of his God, of his justice in prosecuting all violators of his holy law, and of his infinite mercy in granting life to all who will trust in him and in the provisions he has promised for the sinner. So what about us? I said this at the beginning when we started Habakkuk, that he's going to call us to raise our eyes to see God for all that he is and all that he is doing, and then to trust him. Habakkuk is going to call us to confirm, conform. Uh, instead of, Habakkuk, he's going to challenge us. I got a screen, I can't remember what it says. He's going to challenge us there. If we'll listen, he calls us to conform to God and his eternal good purposes instead of trying to force God to conform to ours. That quote from earlier, the way it finished, by this way God establishes himself as just and yet also the justifier of the ungodly who believe. For Jesus the Christ drank the cup of God's fury to the dregs 
and so became the savior of all who would renounce their own pride and violence, looking to him alone for salvation. Ask yourself, is woe coming my way? Do I stand condemned with the Chaldeans? Are you living by your desires as though they alone will give you delight when in fact they may be the very things, especially if they're opposed to God, that will bring you doom? Today is a day to repent and to turn to Christ. Faith in Christ will turn that judgment away from you. God is just. He will punish sin. The good news is that he has punished the sins of his people upon his son on the cross. So this wrath that's coming your way as a sinner can be expiated, put off of you onto the Christ so that that wrath is no longer yours, but is taken away and you are put into God's family. You are reconciled by Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. This wrath doesn't have to be yours, but it can be taken away so that you might then stand and be silent God is working his purposes. Look to him and trust him today. And on that great final day, all of his people will be liberated from their disappointments. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see. I know many trials and troubles, heartbreaks, difficulties, desires around this room. God, I ask for your spirit to give us eyes to see that you are the God whose arm is not short, your ear is not deaf, but you are working all things to their final appointed end. And in the end, justice will be done. Those who have put their trust in Christ, the wrath that, that we deserve, God has taken away so that we might, in the final analysis, stand and look and rejoice at the the way that you have woven our joy throughout all of these things, many of them which we cannot understand, many of them dark threads in the tapestry of life. Yet knowing that you are the God who does not fail and we can trust you. Father, as we come to communion, help us to see and to rejoice in who your son was for us, guaranteeing all of these things for us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.